this is one of the first times I've seen a coalition of community organizations come to a public utility commission effectively to say, here's what the community wants for resilience. And so they've proposed a network of 86 solar and storage resilience hubs throughout New Orleans, distances where everyone in the community can walk to a resilience hub within a reasonable amount of time and distance. Welcome to the Energy Nerd Show, powered by Synapse Energy Economics and Climable.org. Energy Nerd Show. Hey, welcome to the Energy Nerd Show. This show by nerds, for nerds, about energy. I'm Bruce. I'm Jeannie. I'm thrilled to introduce Jen Kelly, a returning guest from Synapse Energy Economics. Hi, Jen. Hi, Jen. Hey, thanks for having me again. Well, we're glad you're here. And our topic for today is the grid of the future and the role of resilience. Yeah. So for the last couple of years, I've been working more heavily on, I guess, what I thought at the time was the intersection of resilience and equity, though. I think as I've gotten a lot deeper into it, I realized that resilience is equity and equity is resilience. And most recently, really seeing some interesting progress in terms of networked resilience or resilience hubs, I guess some people call them. So I'll just share my screen screen to show. This is an image from New Orleans. And what really is kind of transitional here, a couple things. This is one of the first times I've seen a coalition of community organizations come to a public utility commission effectively to say, here's what the community wants for resilience. And so they've proposed a network of 86 solar and storage resilience hubs throughout New Orleans, distances where everyone in the community can walk to a resilience hub within a reasonable amount of time and distance. And what you see here is the mix of resilience hubs, 70 neighborhood level resilience hubs, central hubs for organization, distribution hubs, healthcare hubs, senior living hubs, and deployable battery warehouse that would serve individuals who need more support. So it's pretty exciting to start to see some of these concepts, especially in areas that have been really hard hit. And we know New Orleans has been really hard hit by weather lately. That is great. It's really exciting to see a place commit in such a widespread way to serve the whole community. I think that's the ideal approach. What was your involvement in the work in New Orleans? I was working for a consumer organization that was looking out for consumers. And basically what they wanted me to do was to review two very different proposals, one from a utility and one from a community coalition, and make recommendations about what the community should do moving forward. And what we saw again, which I think is really striking, and I think we've seen it in a number of places now, sometimes what the community wants isn't necessarily what the utility proposes. And there are key differences in terms of what communities' priorities are and why. And so this was the clearest example I've seen since there were two different proposals submitted of that striking difference. So I definitely want to hear how that turned out. But first, are there any hallmarks of the utility proposals that are common across utilities? Or can you talk about the incentives or the positions that seem common among utilities? Yeah, I think it's not unlike a lot of utility proposals in general. I mean, their focus is to strengthen the grid as a whole. 
They are focused on bringing the grid up so that everybody can be served and served in a reasonable and meaningful way. There's more focus on equity. And with that focus on equity, we are certainly seeing areas within that network that haven't been served as well as others. So I don't think we're there in terms of equity, but that's their ultimate goal. And I think what we see from communities is this larger focus on specific facilities that might have a particular community function, either a critical facility or a community-related facility. And we see the recognition from communities that in certain areas, they know the grid is going to go down. And I think New Orleans is a great example of this. They know the grid is going to go down and they want a service that provides support when the grid is not there, recognizing that there isn't really a way to make the grid perfect and survive all of the kind of events that they're going to be experiencing. A couple of questions around that. The utility proposal and the community proposal, who are they made to? Is this a state commission or a New Orleans municipal government? And which one did you like or recommend and how are things turning out? All those are kind of bundled into the big questions. The proposals were made to the city government in this case, which also acts as the reviewing entity, basically the regulator. And it's not done yet. The case is still going on and they're still trying to decide what to do. The plans that were submitted are a pretty significant cost. So that's the challenge with resilience is there can be quite a big cost. And I think they're trying to decide what cost can be reasonably borne by this community. Well, yeah, with 70 resilience hubs, that's a lot. And I mean, it's a big city to walk around. I mean, you can't go from one end to the other on foot in any you know few number of hours. So they definitely need a bunch. But where's all that capital coming from? Yeah. And I think there's a recognition that folks in this area have, you know, from an equity perspective, already borne a lot of cost and pollutants and things like that. So how much more can be tolerated, I think, is a key question. And it's a key question in a lot of areas. Do you have examples from other places? Yes. So another example of a project that I've been working on is actually in Massachusetts. So a bit of a different scenario, but not dissimilar in that Chelsea, Massachusetts is an environmental justice community. And they are at the beginning of a similar process where they want to have a network of microgrids throughout their community on facilities that they consider to be critical. And they're currently in phase one with three buildings involved, but they're definitely looking toward future phases that would add more buildings to that network. So So it's quite similar where the microgrids are not necessarily next to one another, right? I think you see them spread out here throughout the community, but coordinated in a way that I think one of the key things with these resilience hubs is the outreach piece, right? It's the connecting with community to let them know that these are here. And then when there is an emergency, making sure that there are resources to go out into the community and get people to show up to these places who need support, who need that heating and cooling, who need communication services, who need transport, who need assistance. So there's a whole piece to that in terms of engaging the community that goes along with these plans. So that Chelsea project had to get approval from the municipal government, probably from the city council. Do you want to talk about that? And in addition, where the money is coming from to get those installations to happen? I think with these kind of projects, there are certainly a lot of stakeholders and a lot of coordination. And that just in a lot of cases makes the project so much better as well, both the design and the implementation. The money for Chelsea and also in New Orleans would come from multiple different sources. 
Right now, a lot of these resilience hubs are supported by kind of a patchwork of grant funding and various different funding sources and contemplating, I think in numerous cases, a role of utility ratepayer funds as well. So that's kind of all in the works. Ratepayer funds is more so in the works in New Orleans than it was in Chelsea, but it's many different funding sources in most cases. Are there Inflation Reduction Act funds or programs to support these kind of projects? Yes. So there's formula grant funding through 40101D. Planning for that is underway, and I've been working with at least one state on that. One of the challenges there is it's not a huge amount of money, so you have to really think carefully about what your priorities are, I think, in that case. But yes, there's definitely additional funding through federal funds at this point for resilience in general, all different kinds of resilience projects. What else is going on with microgrids and resilience? The thing that I found most surprising really is how much utilities kind of hold the critical pieces to effective planning still. You know, they hold a lot of the data that would be really useful to the community in making these plans in terms of how the grid currently functions and where some of the areas are where they're having service issues. They hold, obviously, the keys to ratepayer funding in a lot of cases. They hold also the keys to interconnection. And I think we found through some of these projects that it can be a real barrier waiting up to a year, if not more, for interconnection with costs that are relatively unknown until the moment it kind of hits you at the end. So I think there's a lot of progress that can be made in terms of, you know, working with utilities to have better access to data that they have available to them, figuring out how to use repair funding effectively for a broader range of projects and also making interconnection better overall. And microgrids aren't the only entity that encounters problems with interconnections. Renewable energy and all of that is having similar issues. So when you learn something surprising in one jurisdiction, do you find that it often applies elsewhere or how do you connect these projects in your mind that are kind of all over the place? Yeah, I think there are a lot of connections, but I will say that each area is struggling with resilience at different levels. And I mean, I know we talked about Massachusetts versus Louisiana. I mean, there's definitely very different threats and threat levels. I've also done some work in Puerto Rico, and we know how hard Puerto Rico has been hit in the recent past. So, you know, I think every community, the basis of how recently they've experienced a significant event and how significant that event was definitely forms the context and the background for the plan that they're going to be able to support and how urgent that plan needs to be. So I do think we see differences, but throughout, I think a lot of communities are looking to augment utility investments that have been predominantly, you know, wires and poles and substations, feeders, that kind of thing, with these distributed resilience hubs that combine solar with storage. Like in Texas, you did a project there, you finished it a year ago, it was kind of a response to that superstorm. Any lessons learned from that? What were your takeaways? Yeah, I mean, Texas added a whole new threat, right? It added the winter element. I think we've been seeing water and we've been seeing summer heat, but Texas added the whole, you know, winter freeze scenario that was new for them and completely unexpected. So yeah, I mean, I think Texas, it was the same thing. There was a newfound level of urgency after that tragic situation happened and a real attention to all the solutions, right, that could be brought to the table to address resilience in Texas. So what are the performance metrics? If you want to understand how a grid is doing now or in the future, how would you measure it or think about it? 
So you have your traditional metrics about, you know, what's the infrastructure, right? How many of what are you installing and how is that performing? So there are reliability metrics that have been in place for a long time that can also be used for a lot of these solutions, KD, KFI, SADI, and SAFI. In addition to that, though, in this case, it's tracking how many people come to each of these hubs, what services are they looking for when they come to these hubs, and are these hubs up and running effectively on the days when they're most needed? And are the services that they say they're going to be able to provide, are those services available to the members of the community who are looking for help? So that's a quick summary, but there's a lot more in our comments. Well, I love this conversation because some of the nerd stuff doesn't really apply to everyone or pique everyone's interest. But I would think that something like resilience is relatable to anyone because we all have electricity as a part of our daily requirements. It's not some kind of luxury. It's really like if you're going to operate in the modern world, you've got to be connected. And so many people in so many regions have been negatively affected by, it's easy for me to say, poor planning or, you know, like I'm from Texas. Of course, no one wanted to spend the extra money to guard against freezing temperatures that were very unexpected, but then big problems emerged. But I think everyone can kind of connect to some story of these big problems you know, that have been happening. And so I'm really glad the resilience conversation is kind of happening in a lot of places. Yeah, I think it's important to people and in ways that they don't even realize. I mean, a lot of people do have backup generators. This is not dissimilar to that. And they think about, you know, what their plan is when they're in some kind of an emergency. So this is not dissimilar to that, but it's, you know, more a plan for the community and neighborhoods as a whole than it is for any one individual. So these are examples of service to a broader group of people than one at a time. Well, I'm so glad you're working on it. Yeah. Thanks for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Bye, Jen. Bye. Bye now. Check out the show notes for visuals and links for more info on the topics discussed. You can find the Energy Nerd Show on social media pretty much everywhere at Energy Nerd Show or on our website at energynerdshow.com.